Greetings, friendlies. Welcome to Dharma PhD, conversations about the science, philosophy, and culture of mindfulness and secular Buddhism. I'm your host, Shannon M. Whitaker, joined by my fabulous co-host. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to episode two. What are we going to talk about today? Today, we are going to talk about the first in a series of six talks given by John Peacock. The name of the series is Buddhism Before the Theravada. So the Theravada is... Thanks for anticipating my question. Yeah. (laughs) You're welcome. I could see it in your eyes. Mm -hmm. I think the easiest way to describe it is that there's two main veins right now of religious Buddhist practice. One is called Mahayana. We're not talking about them today. The one we're going to be talking about is called Theravada. It's more prevalent in India, Southeast Asia, The Mahayana is more in China, Japan. So scholars often believe that Theravadan Buddhism began earlier than Mahayana. So that's why this talk is called Buddhism Before the Theravada. The idea for this series of talks, ostensibly, Peacock is talking about what it was actually like for Siddhartha Gautama when he was alive. What was the culture of India like? So his point is, let's look at these texts and let's try to think about what was actually going on when Siddhartha was alive. In the same way that with the Christian religion, some scholars look back and say, what what was it like in Jesus's time, for example? Yeah, what was yeah, he actually exactly. dealing with? Okay. What was, what was the, what the world like? Yeah. What as, were the worldviews that he was... Around. Yeah. What were the worldviews that he was brought up in? What who were the other people that he was dealing with? Who were his friends? Who were his frenemies? Um, Uh, And then we'll use that stuff to inform how we interpret the writings. Right. The series of texts that I'm also interested in and that Peacock is talking about are called the Nikkeian texts. And they are supposed to be oral histories of things that Gotama actually said. So he would give a talk, people would memorize the talk because they didn't write anything down. And then they passed that tradition down orally for 500 years before anybody wrote the stuff down. Okay. Yeah. So we're it's talking quite a about a long this. oral tradition then. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine that stuff probably slipped in from time well, to sure. time. Well, in comparison, Christianity, the, the, um, the new Testament was written much closer to the time of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas with Gotama much further down the road, they actually had writing at the time of Gotama. But what I understand is that uh, who said this? No self-respecting spiritual teacher would let anybody write anything down (laughs) 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 because it was really about having a relationship with a teacher. It wasn't about going and reading a book. Okay. Is it because, um, does this this little uh, aphorism no self-respecting? Is that because they would they would lose business if uh, people were able to simply read their teachings? I think it was more. I don't know. I haven't asked. It's an interesting question. My sense is that at that time, things that were written down were things about the law and things about commerce. So culturally, you wouldn't you wouldn't write this this sort of topic. You right. wouldn't write about this sort of topic. Yeah, philosophy, um, teachings about paths of liberation wouldn't be written down, not only because that's just not what you did, but also it's very much a, a tradition of one person teaching another person of a sort of one-on-one and, and many to of. many. Okay. It's really about the relationship. I've heard some senior practitioners say, 
the reason there aren't details about how to meditate in those books is because the expectation is that you would be working with a teacher. You wouldn't even have access to this material unless you were working with a teacher who could tell you what to do. Okay. That's episode two. <laughs> we're going to talk about some talks by John Peacock. What are the main points you'd like to make in today's conversation, Shannon? <laughs> the first is that Gotama was not trying to start a religion. He was interested in a philosophy of human flourishing. Okay. It, it, it seemed as though there might be some objection to what you were saying and then you were needing to argue for it. Is that the case? Well, I certainly, yeah, I do think that people would argue that because they're going to say, what would people argue? They, they'll say he didn't teach human flourishing. He taught dukkha. Mm, what's dukkha? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dukkha is a poly word okay. <laughs> and it's a spectrum term. Etymologically, it means the dirty hole inside of an axle wheel when you're driving a cart. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a dirty space, an unpleasant, a bumpy ride. Okay. Anything unpleasant. And it can go from, it's a little too cool in this room right now to I'm dying of COVID to like in a gross. hospital. No, to, to like much, much more to miserable gross. suffering, deep agony. Like okay. it runs, it's a spectrum term and it runs the gamut. It's anything That's that you, you don't it. want. Dookie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not dookie. <laughs> Is that what I said? I got the A in there. No, no poop jokes. This is a, this is a family friendly podcast. Um, Did the Buddha make poop jokes? Not that I'm aware of, but I can't read Polly yet. Right. So I'm hoping. Stay tuned, listeners. Yeah, I'm optimistic. So that's one of my claims. The second claim, the claim. The claim again, just for the, my, for yeah, my memory, the claim that he again was not is trying to start a religion. He was not trying to start a religion. He was interested in a philosophy of human flourishing. Okay. Point, point one. Point one. Point two was that he engaged intensely, as Peacock says, with his culture and that we need to do the same. Okay. And that's really important for me because I see so many people who are interested in these teachings who are negating our culture. So if I understand correctly, Gotama engaged with the culture of his time. Yes. And, and therefore is the point you're making. Therefore, we too ought to engage not with the culture of Gotama's time, right. but with the culture of today. Yeah. Okay. And not even like he did, therefore we should, but he did, and also we should, you know, oh, okay. and it isn't helpful to engage with a culture that didn't have evolution as a concept and didn't know about antibiotics. And so we, can get, we can get stuck a little bit. We yeah. Can, like create paradoxes for ourselves. Yeah, totally. We get too invested in the culture of Gotama's time. There are some people who say that you can't be Buddhist or practice Buddhism and I'm not Buddhist and, but there are people who make the claim that you can't do this stuff unless you believe in rebirth. Hmm. Yeah. So this is one of the classic examples <laughs> of, classic of example. like creating a, you know, a little time warp for yourself. Yeah. And so what happens is you get these modern Western people who were raised in a secular way, who want these teachings, who, who want to understand how their mind works and engage with this material, trying to convince themselves 
that rebirth happens. Feeling obligated to. Yeah. And, and really struggling with it in ways that A, don't make any sense, B, aren't helpful, and C, aren't what the guy was doing in the first place. So you're making the case that if, if a person wants, wants the benefits of, of, as you're saying, secular Buddhism, as we said off the top, if a person wants the benefits of that, it's not necessary to engage with things like rebirth, things like mm, other other religious aspects yeah. of, of Buddhism, that there, that there can be um, a separation there. Yeah, and whether it's religion or whether it's just holdover from these times, right? Because the way I understand a lot of this stuff is that what happened is here was a guy who was incredibly smart and had a brilliant mind and was incredibly contemplative and learned things about how his mind worked. And he shared that with people and those people found it really helpful and, and they prospered as humans. They like, they lived well and they, they liked that. The people, the people studying with him. Yeah. Hmm. He taught a bunch of stuff and then people were like, we have to just save all of this. We can't get rid of any of it. This story, this story kills me on his deathbed. <laughs> The poor guy, he's 80 years old. He's dying of dysentery in a field. And he says to his attendant who has been caring for him for many years, you may dispense with the minor rules because there's like 150 rules for monks and 250 rules for nuns. And he says to the guy, you may dispense with the minor rules. And so here is Ananda with his beloved teacher dying before him, suffering, and not suffering because he doesn't suffer, right? But dying painfully before him (laughs) in an unpleasant way. Mm -hmm. And he he says, you may dispense with the minor rules. And he goes, okay, you know, like, what do you say? And so then Ananda goes later to the, they they have a big council and they bring everybody together. And he says, you know, Gotama said we can dispense with the minor rules. And they said, well, did you ask him which ones? <laughs> Everyone has their own idea. Yeah. It was minor. And, and so, so what they said was, we're not going to get rid of any of them. Oh man. So all of these rules that were Is created. Is that what we're going to do in this podcast? Are we going to go through with a red pen? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. Oh man. So instead of saying, okay, what were the rules that were contextual that had to do because somebody Somebody got into trouble, and so we had to make a rule to cover that that's that situation. Why, that's why there are rules. Right? Instead of saying, I mean, you can kind of say the same thing about legal systems in nations, right? We didn't start out with all these laws, and then we got them, and now you can't like have a horse in downtown All these Houston. antiquated, you can't spit on the left <laughs> side of the, you know. And at some point, you need to clear out the craft. Yeah, at some point, you need to go through that and be like, not doesn't apply anymore, doesn't apply anymore, get rid of that one. And, and they just didn't because they didn't, they didn't have enough confidence or they were, the way I understand it is they didn't know what was important. So they just hung on to everything okay. and they weren't willing. They didn't feel comfortable making a cut. Right. They weren't willing to take the risk to lose something. And so they just kept it all. Well, it sounds like a committee meeting too, right? Yeah. It's a classic committee <laughs> strategy. Oh, we're designing a logo and we brought four concepts. Great. Let's just, uh, you know, have a them. shield with four quadrants and uh, we'll plop one concept in each quadrant. Done. <laughs> no one will be able to see anything. It'll be tiny. It'll just, it'll not be, it won't, it won't express a singular vision. Right. Yeah. Which is the, the kind of thing that seems like is needed here. There's a lot of, a lot of cruft. Yeah. It's built up and needs to be. Absolutely. Cleared out. But 
we're not we're not starting a new religion. No, he we're wasn't not. No, if anyone is, if anyone thinks that, I'd like to to clarify right now. I am also not starting a religion. Well, he didn't intend to either, though. I am interested in human flourishing. <laughs> in fact, that's something uh-huh. I famous last words. <laughs> That's actually something that I, that I did want to articulate was for me, what is most important is human flourishing. It's not mindfulness with a capital M or secular Buddhism or even neuroscience or cognitive science. For me, it's, I'm so enraptured with the art and the practice of human flourishing. How do we live well as human beings in this life? In this time. In this time, on this planet. And so all of these other things, I think that mindfulness and and the teachings of Gotama and the wisdom that has come up through the traditions. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, there's 2,500 years of people mm-hmm. working and thinking and sitting and meditating. Yeah. And there's a lot of wisdom there. But to me, what's most interesting is how does that lend itself to human flourishing? Same with the neuroscience, same with the philosophy and the psychology, all of that stuff. Yeah, that's the thing I wanted to say. Thanks. It's a good, it's a good starting point. It's a good thesis. Good, you know, in the same way that, that, that Gautama and each of the scholars since then were viewing this with the, their own lens. Yeah. Their own lens and their own goals. It's good for you to say right off the top, here are my goals. Yeah. People, you know, I, I teach mindfulness. I'm ostensibly a philosopher of mindfulness. And so people think like, oh, mindfulness is your thing. And yes, and. It's not mindfulness trademark. Yeah, because mindfulness or philosophy of human flourishing just sounds weird. People just stare at me. It's a big horizontal business card. It's more more (laughs) like an illegible bumper sticker. It sounds like this lecture by John Peacock was really formative for you. Yeah. It sounds like you've invested a lot of effort in it. There are six of them. You've listened to all of them. You've transcribed all of them. Yeah. And there's a link in the show notes. Yeah. yeah there'll be a link in the show notes to the talk itself, to this whole series. We're going to do all six of them, but there'll be a link to the first one and also to the transcript that I wrote. So if you're more of a text person than a listening person, that's also available and that link will be in the show notes. You really, you really digested these. Yeah. Why did you, there are a lot of talks out there. <laughs> That's true. Why did you why did you invest so much effort in these? When I first heard these talks, I was I was on a bus on my way to Omega, which is a grab bag of spirituality if there ever was one, <laughs> <laughs> to take my first MBSR teacher training class. Okay. I had already explored several different traditions I had done the residency at the Zen monastery. I had done retreats with Goenka's people. I had done retreats with Bante Gunaratana in West Virginia and with the Shambhala folks. So I had a broad exposure to different traditions and practices, but nothing had really resonated. Nothing had really grabbed me, okay. including, including MBSR. It was, it was great, but wasn't hadn't quite, landed. And so I'm, I'm on this bus for an entire day and I had happened to download this series of six talks for the trip. And so I'm sitting in my window seat and I'm wrapped up in this enormous scarf and I'm listening to this person and he starts talking in a way 
that totally resonated with me. Okay. Here was a deeply experienced practitioner, mm-hmm. um, like many teachers in his generation. You know, he'd spent several decades in monasteries in Asia, but he's also a deeply learned scholar. And scholar of other traditions as well? Um, well, of, of Buddhism, as far as I know, um, okay. but he was the, they say it in the talk, he was at Oxford, the guy that did mindfulness stuff. Oh, I see. So both, both a scholar and a practitioner. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he was interested not just in the air quotes, religious aspect, but also in like, what were they actually talking about? Let's, let's take a break for a minute from what people are saying and let's actually go and look at the material and, and say, okay, what, what was actually written down? Okay. Which really resonated with me. Yeah. Go to the source. Yeah. He also shared my secular worldview. Okay. So here's someone who isn't telling me that I need to believe in rebirth in order to meditate. Okay. So he's been, so he's a practitioner, but not a religious practitioner and a scholar. So a lot lot of points of connection here. Yeah, a lot of points of connection. Um, The way he thought about it and the way he talked about it, he says early on in the talk that he doesn't like the word Buddhism. And I am so on board with that (laughs) because I do not like that word. I usually use the word, the B word is what I usually call it. Mm -hmm. He says, we should just get rid of it because, you know, and he brings up the same point, right? Which is nobody, none of the people who are practicing Buddhism call themselves Buddhists. Mm. That word was invented by Western academia who were like, well, what is this religion that's happening? What is this thing that's happening in Japan and in China and Sri Lanka and in India? Oh, it's, it's Buddhism. They have a Buddha, therefore. Therefore it's Buddhism. Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a word that was created to identify basically an other is philosophically a word that would be used. You know, and he says like, we should get rid of that word. He says, it doesn't mean anything anyway. If anything, it means awakeism. Because the word Buddha comes from the word Bodhi, which means to awaken. And so it should just be awakeism, which is great. And I like that too. So he starts off with that. He says at one point that we need to throw out most of the translations. So Not, he's really, he's really like hitting your, oh, he's just pushing absolutely. your buttons, pulling you right in. You know, this, this, the problem is not the books that have been, the translations that have been done, the problem is the dictionary. It's actually the poly to English dictionary is a huge part of the problem. We need to rewrite the dictionary. Dictionary is incorrect. The dictionary has major problems because the dictionary that we're using to do these translations, the dictionary that we're using was written by a group of Westerners who were in India. They were lawyers. They were Um, male, they were white, they were, and they found this, this religion or they found this thing. And so they, they used words that made sense to them because they were said, well, it's kind of like a religion to us. So we're going to use a bunch of religious words. So there's, you don't know this part, Jeff, but there's this thing called the four noble truths. Okay. And Peacock says the ex professor of middle Indo-Aryan dialects at Cambridge And then he says, this shows you how esoteric this is. (laughs) The guy's name was Roy Norman. Once said, out of all the possible translations of the term Arya Sacha, that is translated Four Noble Truths, out of all the possible translations, Four Noble Truths is about the worst. So here we have, (laughs) I know you're into the pillars. Here we have a pillar of Buddhism, which esteemed scholars are saying, this is not a translation that is appropriate. 
So we're actually using a dictionary that's broken. We have to go back and actually fix the dictionary before we can start doing translations that really speak to modern people. Okay, that's interesting. So here I am on this bus, you know, listening to, I mean, I probably listened to five hours of these talks in one sitting and I, I was just agog. That's why I wanted to start with this series because it was so formational and, you know, coming out of that, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have anybody that I knew that was practicing in this way. And anyone to, to talk about these, uh, these yeah. lectures with. <laughs> Peacock is a founding member of Bodhi College, which listeners, you're going to hear a lot about <laughs> mm-hmm. the group of teachers that I really respect and that really resonate with me. But at the time I didn't know about them. And so I didn't know what to do with this information, but it was very formative. You know, I showed up at this MBSR teacher training with this new vision that there were people out there that thought in the way that I did. That must've been really, really reassuring because prior to that you'd been, as you mentioned, engaging with a bunch of different traditions, different communities. Yeah. And, and kind of crossing them off the list. Nah, I don't really fit in here. <laughs> nah, I don't really fit in there. But then, and, and, and so you're on your way to try, you know, yet, yet another. And, and you find this handhold. Yeah. You find this, this, uh, you know, place to grab onto. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. It was frustrating too, because suddenly I had someone affirming what I felt. I didn't have the training in the background to articulate it this way. Right? Like I don't, I didn't feel like I could plant my flag and say four noble truths, terrible definition. You know, I didn't feel confident with that. So it was a little frustrating to then re dive back into the waters of people who were more interested in the religious aspect and less interested in the secular Those, those waters being the, the, the place you were headed to on the bus. Omega... Or are you referring yeah. to something else? I, I'm referring to all of it. I'm referring, yeah, I'm referring to the place I was headed, which was MBSR, which is secular. But also when I got back home, you know, I, I still didn't have people to practice with. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. Yeah. So you, there was a light, but it was, it was way down yeah. there at the end yeah. of a tunnel. Yeah. It was one of those things. It wasn't like I could see my North Star, but I had suddenly, I knew, go North-ish. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, okay. head in this general direction. Okay. And between him and Stephen Batchelor, when I realized the two of them were working together, it all became clear. And then, you know, Bodhi College all the way now. Put so a link in the you, show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so with that with that context into this group of talks, yeah. what what did you find in the first one? It was so powerful. It's interesting to sort of think back to that time and to remember the experience of listening to it and hearing, hearing him say that some of the, the suttas in, in these texts Mm -hmm. are jokes, like they're making fun of things in the culture, (laughs) but that the tradition took it seriously. He's actually, yeah, he's parroting, parodying these other Vedic texts He's making fun of them. But somehow that context had been lost. But that context was lost, right? Because they, because later on the tradition was like, we have to keep everything, keep everything he said and, mm-hmm. and, and not only keep it, make it holy. Sure. It has to be holy. Something that Peacock said is that 
and, and I'm inspired to do this from this talk and others is that learning Polly is actually great because you can read the puns because he's punning with the language Okay, and so those puns don't come across there. when they're translated yeah, yeah, yeah. by monks. Like the monks don't, don't, don't try to do that. Is this kind of stuff as bad as like reading through the, the federal code of regulations here in the United <laughs> States and finding a modest proposal in there? Is it, is it that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. That's yeah, pretty bad. It's shocking. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> what? It was a, that was a joke? You're, you're writing this seriously? Yeah. No, you're not writing this. So to learn that we have so much to learn about it, that was also, I don't remember if it was refreshing at the time, but it is now, it's, it's inspirational now to recognize that we haven't done all the work, that, that this personal PhD project, there's plenty of room for me in this field. Okay. And like some pretty low hanging fruit too. Yeah. Some pretty low hanging fruit. I mean, there's a lot of it. It's going to take a lot of work to pick it all up, but, but it's not, it's not, um, this kind of thing where we're, you know, in nuclear physics and you need to get uh, three or four PhDs and then be accepted to a particle accelerator. And there's only a couple of good ones and you'll be on a team of 150 people and your name, your name will be not on the paper. Right. It's not that kind of thing. It's, it's not like, that kind of thing. Oh, we're just using the wrong words and let's, let's give it another try. Yeah. That is really powerful to me. And it's given me confidence in some of the work that I've been doing as I'm starting to do translations to really say, let's translate this stuff in a way that makes sense in our culture. This, this, I, the second of these ideas that I mentioned where we need to be engaging with our culture. One really basic example is in English, in American English, we usually talk about things in the positive. We say, this is like this, this is like that. Mm-hmm. But in the poly, they do a lot of negation. This is okay. not like that. Mm-hmm. And so even in my opinion, and there are many who would disagree with me, doing the translations is easier to read if you just make it a positive sentence instead of a negative sentence. If you, mm. if you, take those places where the negation is highlighted and actually change it so that it makes sense the way we talk. It conforms to the conventions yeah. of, our, of our modern speech. Yeah. So you don't, uh, you don't end up at the end of a, you know, a passage saying, wow, they're pretty negative. <laughs> it's kind of a downer. I think it's really important to do really strict translations of this is, this is what, what we think in this moment is as close as we could possibly get it to the words that came out of his mouth. But I also think it's important to say, what was he trying to say? Mm -hmm. How can we express that? So Douglas Hofstadter has this amazing book called Surfaces and Essences. And it's about how we use analogy and metaphor in our language. And he has this beautiful passage. I only read the English version. He wrote it in English and in French. And in the English version, they talk about little birds flying around inside of an airport, like little sparrows, you know, they get in there and you're like, what are they doing in here? You know, but it's a big space and they're flying around. And then later in the book, he says, for you English readers, he's talking about translation and he says, it's not good enough to go word for word. When I tell this story in the French book, I don't use an airport because many French people have not flown. Instead, I talk about the metro. Right, the Parisian metro, the underground train. Because if you're French, even if you haven't, even if you don't live in Paris, 
the Parisian metro is part of your culture. Same with in the U.S. Even if you have never flown, you you get you've seen air it in travel movies. This yeah. is a big part of the popular yeah, culture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He says, if I had translated word for word the Parisian metro story in English, it would have been for even if I had used the New York subway. The subway is really foreign to a lot of Americans and they wouldn't have identified with it in the same way. It wouldn't have resonated. And so he argues that that big, it seems it might seem like a big gap between the one and the other, but actually it resonates with people better if you, what he calls transculturate. Okay. I think there's room for that. Some of that's needed here. It sounds like. I, I think that, I think there's, I think it's good to have both. I think it's good to have both a monk looking at a dictionary and saying, here is what the language says word for word. And I think it's important to have someone I hope will be me who understands the language understands, maybe not understands, but is deep enough in it to have a sense of what would be skillful who can then do a translation that will resonate with people. Is this one of your goals in the yeah, PhD project? Absolutely. I mean, well, not in the PhD project, but in the life project, Okay. I would love to do translations. Okay. Yeah. So maybe after the Dharma PhD project, there'll be another Dharma translation <laughs> another project. Another PhD. <laughs> well, that's the thing about PhD people with, uh, you know, higher education <laughs> degrees. You could get addicted to that kind of thing. You got to watch out. Especially if you're doing it without any bosses, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would love to. And I mean, I hope to do some during the PhD, it's, it's, I'm hoping it'll be some part smaller, of the process. Some smaller self-contained sort of projects rather than a sweeping. Uh, oh yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like pick out suttas that, that I think are, that, that resonate with me and. The sarcastic ones. Yeah. Preferably all the jokey ones. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are the ones that might resonate with me. <laughs> probably, probably. Thanks very much. I, I found this informative. I found it entertaining. Oh, good. This is great. Yeah. Thanks so much for being my co-host. You're the best. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And to our audience, thanks so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed it. Please reach out and get in touch. We're available at... What's the website again? DharmaPhD.com. There it is. (laughs) And uh, yeah, may you be well. It sounds like this chalk by John Peacock was really formative. I'm going to take a fresh take. Let's, let's pronounce it right. But both John Peacock and I are foils for your, for your worldview. Yeah, basically. Well, tell us, tell us a little bit about Peacock though. Yeah, I should. That's where we started out. I don't know very much about John Peacock, but I'll tell you about the talk. But that doesn't make it into the final edit. But I need to talk about John Peacock. I feel like, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so so at last some some hints of peacock. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>